This is The Conversation on Hawaii Public Radio. I'm Catherine Cruz. Sam Lemo heads a division of the Department of Land and Natural Resources, which is charged with protecting conservation land. But turns out some of that land is being used for commercial ventures, specifically short-term vacation rentals, which are illegal. We talked to Lemo this week about the crackdown underway. A lot of people believe DLNR only regulates watershed areas, beaches, marine areas, wetlands and that type of thing, you know, lands with natural resource values. But we also regulate residential areas. There's quite a bit of private land within the conservation district that we are responsible for, owned by private landowners. And uh, in many cases, they've endeavored to build a single-family residence on those parcels. So I'm talking about places like Hyena on the island of Kauai, McKenna on the island of Maui. Uh, we have private residences in South Kona on the Big Island. And um, on Oahu, certainly there's a lot of residences in the Tanless area of Oahu, which is uh, conservation lands and some on Molokai as well. And so many of these sites have been issued permits for single-family residences, and they've built homes. And you know how economies change, uh, people's interests change, and so sometimes those homes end up being used for uh, short-term vacation rentals because, as we all know, it's a quite profitable endeavor here. You know, we pick up the TVRs. Uh, Sometimes people report them to us. Uh, Sometimes we come across them by accident, and uh, in the case of South Kona, what had happened is, uh, I believe the county of Hawaii is looking at the issue, asking people to apply to sort of legalize TVRs on the Big Island. Well, there's a number of people that in the conservation district that applied to the county of Hawaii to get a, a what they are calling, I guess short-term vacation rental and non-conforming use within the county of Hawaii sort of registration. And so when they went to them, the county basically told them, well, you're not within the county jurisdiction. you got to go talk to the state. So that's how we found a number of these cases on the Big Island. And so we're in the process now of trying to curtail the, the activity because it's just flat not permitted in the conservation district. The conservation district is not intended to be used uh, for these types of purposes. The board allowed somebody to build a home there, and that was the extent of it. Anything beyond that, such as a commercialization, is not expressly permitted. Uh, certainly not without the permission of the Board of Land and Natural Resources, and so we're conducting enforcement actions right now. Uh, tell us about the fines. The, the fines are depend on a number of factors. Basically, if we find that you're doing a TVR, what happens is we'll give you a, a notice and order, and the notice and order will say, you know, we think you're in violation of conservation district regulations. Of course, we think they are because we have to basically, you know, uh, win the case. And uh, we tell them that they may be fined $15,000 for the infraction, and if they continue doing it, they can be charged another $15,000 per day. So we'll notify them of that, and then we'll basically prepare a staff report, and then we'll forward that staff report to them, which is basically our analysis of the situation, and that staff report comes with recommendations, which includes the fine and any sort of other actions we ask them to take. Uh, including, please stop the activity, file a file a covenant with us that says you're never going to do it again, et cetera, et cetera. Well, sometimes if we find that they kept doing it after we notified them and we can prove that, then we can find them $15,000 a day. But that's a very difficult uh, 
standard to reach because we just don't have the resources to be out there watching them day in and day out. So basically, we'll bring them before the land board and we'll generally say, you're going to be fined $15,000 for the, the TVR, plus you're going to be fined a little bit of money for administrative cost. And so, you know, we're talking about in the range of like $15,000 to $30,000 per case. We did complete a couple of them, and they've agreed to pay the fine, and they've agreed to stop using the property for uh, short-term vacation rentals. And so I feel like, you know, that was a sort of a success story. And is this just complaint-driven? Because I know that's the case certainly here in Honolulu. It is complaint-driven. You know, we can look at these, like, VRBO websites and, you know, try to pick things up. But Generally, the stuff sort of floats into our office eventually. Um, yeah, we have a saying here, you know, we may, I, mean, I hate to say it this way, but, you know, you know, we may not be able to, like, reach you now, but believe me, someday we'll, we'll reach you because, you know, things just tend to trickle into my office over time, whether it's a TVR, whether it's an illegal seawall, whether it's any sort of uh, malfeasance taking place in the conservation district. Because of the system that we have, because we have people sort of, who care about what people do on conservation lands because of the recording systems that we have for uh, property. You know, we eventually, you know, pick these things up. It just, you know, we just can't rush out and solve every problem in the world today. We just don't have the resources or uh, capability to do that. So it's sort of a uh, sort of a slow-moving process. Right, but it'll eventually catch up. Eventually, to the things, eventually things get sorted out. Not it doesn't happen on everybody's, you know, impatient time frames. But I've been here about thirty years doing sort of management for fifteen, sixteen, seventeen years, and you know, it's a slow trickle of working through difficult issues. It takes time. On the land board agendas, most of them seem to have been on the Big Island. Correct me if I'm wrong. Yeah, the latest cases we had were Big Island. We just sort of, you know, we hit sort of a a hot spot there in, in South Kona, and so we're working through that right now. People need to understand, you know, because what happens is, you know, pe- people come to Hawaii and they, they buy property, and um, maybe they don't check all the regulations, they don't do uh, a really thorough vetting, and they just assume because it's a beautiful property in a beautiful spot that, you know, it can be used for, you know, for instance, uh, you know, short-term vacation rentals. And the reality is, you know, they're probably breaking the law when they do that. They certainly need to clear it out with the county jurisdiction. Certainly in the conservation district, it's not permitted. So people really need to be aware of the restrictions imposed um, on residential properties in the Hawaiian Islands because the problem is, you know, we like our neighborhoods. We have residential neighborhoods. They're for residential purposes. And so once you bring in a short-term vacation rental element, all of a sudden you have all this traffic coming in and out of these areas, you know, it it can be disruptive for people. You know, they didn't pay, you know, the kind of money that they pay to live in a place like this only to sort of be besieged by uh, tourists in their own backyard. I mean, there's a place for that. You know, there's Waikiki, there's Kanapali, there's tourist centers all over the state. The problem is, you know, why are they bringing this into our neighborhoods? It's unfair and a little bit unfortunate. On conservation lands, that's certainly not what the purpose of the conservation district is for. So, you know, we're we're simply uh, trying to sort of correct the situation with a little enforcement. You know, I get it. You know, it's it's 
It's a visitor economy. It generates income. It generates tax revenues. But, you know, I think we need to really be aware of the impacts this is having on our neighborhoods. Right. So and certainly, like in a place like Hyena, for instance, if, you know, on the island of Kauai, if all of a sudden the whole community just becomes one big, you know, transient vacation rental center, not only does that sort of wipe out any sort of vestiges of a, of a, of a community for local people, but it also maybe have an impact on the resources, right, in that area, which are very sensitive. Once you get, you know, a lot of people kind of running roughshod over the area, it can have an impact. So there's residential impacts, there's impacts to people that live in residential neighborhoods, and then there's impacts to resources that can occur because of the overuse that was DLNR Sam Lemo talking about the recent enforcement transit vacation rental action by the state on Hawaii Island. Support for Hawaii Public Radio comes from Douglas Trade Shows, serving Hawaii since 1983, featuring the Hawaii Market Merchandise Expos four times a year at the Neil Blaisdell Expo Hall. DouglasTradeShows.com When you give to Hawaii Public Radio, you can do so knowing that your contribution will be used wisely. That's because we have been awarded a four-star rating from Charity Navigator, America's largest independent evaluator of nonprofits. And we've earned that rating eight years in a row. It tells you that your donation goes toward the things that matter most. For more about Charity Navigator or to become a member, head to our website, hawaiipublicradio.org. This is The Conversation on statewide, member-supported Hawaii Public Radio. Now it's time for your Backyard Quiz. On today's Backyard Quiz, we take a look back at the history of one Oahu community. The Wailua District covers the area from Waimea Valley to Kaena Point, and in ancient times, was once the birthplace of Oahu's reigning chiefs and the location of one of the island's largest, most productive fish ponds. The fertile land was highly valued and fiercely guarded by Hawaiian chiefs in times of war, and its peaceful lifestyle was famed in old sayings. The boom of the sugar industry would change life for its residents beginning in 1865 when Levi and Warren Chamberlain started the first sugar plantation in Wailua. That first plantation would ultimately fail, and in 1874, Robert Halstead of Halstead and Gordon would buy it out from the Chamberlains. Castle and Cook would eventually take it over in 1898 and, and it formed the Wailua Agricultural Company. With its, within its first year under Castle and Cook's ownership, the mill produced 1,741 tons of sugar. Between 1900 and 1906, four surface water collection systems were constructed, giving the Wailua Sugar Plantation the largest water storage capacity in the state of Hawaii. 
Despite its success, the plantation was unable to increase the tons of sugar per acre yields and was the last plantation on the island of Oahu to close. Do you remember what year the Wailua Sugar Company closed down? Call 941-3689 or 877-941-3689 if you know the answer. First one to get it right gets a reusable tote bag that tells people you got it right. Support for the Backyard Quiz comes from Locations, whose Realtors and staff proudly support HPR's commitment to sharing stories of Hawaii's people and places. Locations, welcome home. firm of Cronenfried, Sakia, Kakia, and Fairbanks is settling its lawsuit against Ala Moana Shopping Center for negligence. It stems from a fatal fall four years ago on Discoverer's Day holiday weekend, a big draw for shoppers. McRoy Nagato was 21 when he and his buddy Nicholas Coafredis and his sister were celebrating his birthday with dinner at the mall. There was lots to look forward to. Mackie and his wife Tierra just had a little girl named Mackenzie. He doesn't remember the fall from that top parking structure, but Tierra does. You know, it just happened so fast. And next thing you know, we're running towards them. That's all blur, like I said, all blur. And I don't really like to talk about it. Understandably, it was difficult for the couple to talk about it publicly. Mackie has been to the mall since that fall. So many lives changed that day after rusty railing gave way. Their friend, Koa Freitas, died that day, and Mackie would suffer a fractured skull. Mackie is still in a wheelchair. Uh, his vision is impaired, and he needs more therapy. He still has memory issues related to his brain injury and admits he's still pretty upset about that ordeal over these past years. Sometimes you get pretty mad. Think back on how different life would be if that, this never happened, though. And here's his attorney, Rick Freed. Our goal was, uh, particularly with uh, uh, Mackie, who was here today, was to make sure that no matter what he needs in the future, he will be taken care of. And we're confident that that will happen. The case itself settled, I can't remember exactly, but close to a year ago, it's taken us this long to get all the approvals and to put all the financial pieces together to make sure that whatever housing they need, whatever therapies they need, whatever vehicles they need, whatever living assistance or otherwise assistance that they're for Mackey. Because as you saw, he weighs about what he did when he was the state uh, heavyweight uh, bench press champion. Uh, and so he's a big guy and you saw his wife is quite small, so she, she's going to need help. He's doing far better, but obviously not where he's ever going to be what we would consider uh, normal. But boy, he is uh, so much better. And uh, 
when we went up recently to see him, my partner had severed his Achilles, and he asked, how's your foot doing? That was impressive. So he's, he, there's things much different than they were two, three years ago. Right, and he suffered a uh, skull fracture, and Multiple he has fractures. to uh, be on um, anti-seizure medicine now. Forever, probably, yes. And so far, the seizures are under control, but uh, with the extent of damage, and when he left here after being in a coma for a while, he uh, was to go to the maybe the best brain rehab center in the world, maybe certainly in the country, Craig in Denver, and unfortunately he had an infection of his brain, so they had to take him for a full month to Swedish Hospital in Denver where they operated, again, opened up his whole brain and uh, otherwise he might not have survived. And early on they didn't think he would survive. It was remarkable for falling three floors uh, on his head basically and surviving. This case probably shocked a lot of people because everybody goes to Ala Moana and you, you don't think of something like this happening at a place where you're invited to come in. Uh, what can you say about what you asked for as far as safety at the center? Well, I think that's finally happened, and I think they did finally step up to the plate. They come in with a lot of their people, General Growth did from Chicago, and did a very nice apology to the family, and I think finally got it. But it wasn't until this happened uh, that they uh, did what was the responsible thing to do, which is a checking, you know, this is right on the salt water. There's going to be a road, there's going to be rusting, and it just needs to be continual maintenance. And in the, it's, you know, it's one of the biggest centers in the country. You, uh, and as you say, uh, Catherine, everybody goes there. And uh, you need to not even think about, you know, if I'm going to lean up against a rail, is it going to stay? Uh, I mean, nuts. Now they will. And I hope and I think they'll they have an ongoing maintenance program, we're told, that will ensure this never happens again. So can you disclose uh, the terms of the settlement at all? Not at all, unfortunately. Okay, but, but all you can say is that uh, Mackey's medical care and future will be taken care of with the settlement. Yeah, almost anything he could ever need. And that's why we wanted to get the financial end set up properly. It's uh, enough money I couldn't manage it. So we've got some very good people managing it. And of course the, the Freitas uh, claim was substantial and that was a little easier to figure out because unfortunately he passed. But you know we had economists looking at future earnings, cost of all these uh, medical therapies and costs to date and uh, reduced uh, to present value and then there will be an income stream which will have flexibility in it. it it's not rigid. If uh, there's a conservator that's appointed that will oversee any significant expenses. But uh, Mackey's wife has really stepped up as she said she was always the shy one in the background. Now she's had to take over and she's done it. A lot of people wouldn't have. And Mackey talked about how he has a daughter and you know, he, 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 he enjoys being with her and watching her grow up, um, but he's still kind of angry that, you know, his, his life is not the same. 
Sure, and 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 frankly, uh, several years ago, he, when he was having ups and downs, there was concern with he and uh, Kenzie uh, together. That's I think gone, and uh, whatever he can spend time with her is great. She's doing, I'm told, just fine in kindergarten. She's doing well, and uh, they're uh, devoted as most obviously the mom, but he too has come around a lot. Anything else you can say? I mean, this isn't the first case that involved a fall with general growth. I think there was an, an, uh, a, an incident many years ago with two students falling off the balcony. That was the one I'm aware of and we were involved in was not uh, at the center. It was at a condominium where the railing uh, gave way and uh, those two got repaired, but that was at least a decade before this. But General Growth owned that property too. I believe so. Yes, yeah. if I recall. Well, hopefully this will set an example around the country that these uh, malls, and, and we're ground zero for saltwater erosion and so forth, I mean, right on the water. Uh, and, uh, you know, hopefully they've learned lessons in other malls that they need to make sure this thing never happens. And I think with this precedent, if it happens again, there are going to be some major punitive damage claims that, look at, you know this could happen, why weren't you inspecting? Um, but, you know, we can, we'll see. That was Honolulu attorney Rick Fried, who sued on behalf of two young men who fell three floors at the top deck of the Alamona Shopping Center. General Growth spent some $3 million to replace rusty railing and deal with concrete spalling. Uh, since that fatal fall, it was a public safety issue that was flagged years before. As part of the settlement, no information is being released about how much mall management paid the families. It is now time for our reality check with our partners at Honolulu Civil Beat. Reporter Christina Jedro joins us today. Good morning. Morning, Catherine. So your story is about uh, a program that's helping vets to transition to the outside. That's right. Uh, there's this program at Schofield Barracks. It's new, uh, and Microsoft is teaching it. They started last year. Basically, it's an 18-week program where vets and soon-to-be vets learn tech skills in areas like cloud development and cybersecurity to help prepare them for work in the civilian world. It's called the Microsoft Software and Systems Academy. I mean, that's terrific that we have this opportunity out here. Yeah, it's pretty cool. It's new for Microsoft, but uh, the concept is not uh, the only one of its kind. It's actually part of the Department of Defense's Skill, Bid Skill Bridge program, uh, which is designed for private companies to train veterans and then hopefully hire them when the training is over so that they're all set to, you know, transition um, into non-military life. So Amazon, Delta Airlines, T Toyota, and a lot of other big companies uh, participate in, in this program. So how long has this been uh, underway here in the islands? 
Um, it's just been since last summer for Microsoft, at least. Um, and so the first cohort graduated at the end of last year. It was uh, 17 folks. Three of them are actually now working for Microsoft. Another four are doing a paid internship with Amazon. A couple went back to school, and others are just working in the tech industry now, according to the site manager. Uh, and graduates of the program, at least with Microsoft, make an average of more than 75000 a year. So it's a... Uh, pretty good for them. I mean, that's great. I mean, you know, our military veterans have great skills that come with the discipline of the military. And uh, then to be able to, you know, segue into these good paying jobs. I mean, that's terrific. Definitely. And Microsoft said in a statement that, you know, our veterans have um, so many assets and so much to offer. And that's kind of what they're looking for in the tech industry. Um, so from the training perspective, it's just a matter of teaching them some technical skills. And also they get to work on their resumes, personal branding, kind of converting their military jargon into IT jargon so that they can market themselves that way. And um, the students have really found some success, according to uh, the teachers and a student I talked to. So this is a, an intensive program, right? Yes. So it's like full-time school, basically, eight hours a day uh, for 18 weeks. And even on the weekends, uh, they're, they're always trying to improve themselves. Microsoft actually video conferences in um, about twice a week. So it's intense. They learn very quickly, they told me. Um, but it's, it's a great educational experience, they said. So, yeah, what else have the students told you? I mean, you know, are we like just one of a handful of places where this actually exists? It, it's just starting up for Microsoft. There are a couple other states um, that offer it in California, Colorado, Florida, Kentucky, North Carolina, Texas, Virginia, and Washington. Um, but here, um, you know, this one of the students was telling me that she really, she'd spent about a decade in the Navy, you know, always taking orders. She was a display technician and then later a military correctional officer. So you're kind of always told what to do in the military. And she said, you know, approaching the end of my service, no one was telling me what to do anymore, and I wasn't sure what direction to go into. And then she found this program, and she felt like she had some stability and a direction again. Um, so she is hoping to maybe get a job with Microsoft when she's done, or at least somewhere in the IT world. She does want to stay in Hawaii. So now, does the GI Bill pay for this program? It does. Um, some of the other iterations of the program elsewhere, um, not with Microsoft, the Department of Defense covers it. For this one, it's the GI Bill, so it's totally free for vets. They can pay out of pocket if they want to for some reason, but um, yeah, it's a free educational opportunity for them and to to be training full-time. And there's been a real concerted effort to help our veterans. Absolutely, yeah. I mean, we've actually gotten the veteran unemployment rate lower than the non-veteran unemployment rate, which is really encouraging. Um, however, there is some evidence that vets have trouble finding the right fit as they enter the civilian job market. ZipRecruiter and the Call of Duty Endowment, which is a, a nonprofit funded by the, the makers of the video game, they did a report a couple years ago showing that underemployment affects veteran job seekers more so than non-veteran people. So um, they're, you know, this is an effort to kind of help people transition and, and find the right fit. And the training, it takes place here on Oahu only? Uh, yes, on Schofield Barracks, but it's open not only to the Army, but to all branches, Navy, Marine, Air Force, Coast Guard. Um, and every year on, in Hawaii, we actually have over 8,000 military members leaving the military. So this is an opportunity for them to um, 
make their way back to the civilian world. Yeah, it's a great opportunity. Yeah, the, uh, thanks for uh, showing the or putting the spotlight on this uh, so to get thanks, the word out for the veterans. Thanks, Catherine. All right. That was reporter Christina Jedra with today's Reality Check. To read the full story about the Microsoft program, visit civilbeat.org. Support for Hawaii Public Radio comes from University of Hawaii Presents, the Indian Ink Theater Company, in the interactive comedy Mrs. Krishnan's Party, 2 p.m. Sunday, March 8th at Leeward Theater, outreach.hawaii.edu community. Hold on to your brains. This time, Says You comes to you from Brandeis University. People in the audience think they have it. Ben, 10 points for the audience. Barry, uh, what, yes? is it possible the audience is Googling this? <laughs> <laughs> it's fast, it's fun, it's some of the most colorful radio on the air, says you. Starting tonight at 6.30, following Marketplace. The sailing vessel, Kwai, can often be found docked at Kiwala Basin here on Oahu when it's not traveling on the open ocean throughout the Pacific. This past summer, the cargo ship was hired to sail out into the gyre to collect marine debris. It snagged 40 tons of ghost nets that is a growing threat to mariners and to ocean life. We talked to owner Brad Ives earlier this year as he was about to set sail to the Kiribati and then to the Cook Islands. Later this spring, the Kauai will head back out to the Pacific gyre. Its name translates to water buffalo and a workhorse it is. The ghost nets are fishing nets that have been abandoned in the ocean and which are, well, can be still fishing. They can be uh, a danger to ships and they can be, catch other fish, turtles, anything can, can get tangled up in them. So it's kind of like the top of the chain of plastic that's in the ocean because they tend to actually make themselves into balls of different nets. And a ball will be all colors and different kinds of nets. I have not heard a good explanation why they collect that way, but it's great for, for picking up plastic because they tend to be in balls or at least uh, layers of nets that's all in one place. And so we can go to the net, or once we find it, and we can just put a sling around it and lift it, sometimes by hand, and if it's too big, and some of them are up to five tons and above, then we use our cargo gear uh, to lift them up onto the ship. Like how many pounds of netting did you retrieve this summer? We estimated 40 tons and that all came ashore here in Hawaii and most of it ended up at the H power plant burned for electricity. Though we did keep some about um, half a ton for uh, artists to make into <laughs> different programs whatever they had artwork or jewelry or there's, there's a little small cottage industry in making uh, making things out of plastic retrieved from the ocean. 
And so tell us about the organization that hired you folks to go find these nets, because, you know, how do you know exactly where to go? Well, the, the, the organization Ocean Voyages Institute is a nonprofit organization run by Mary Crowley, and her commercial business is yacht charters around the world. So she knows a lot of yachts that are transiting between the mainland and Hawaii. So she's asked them, and they've agreed to do it, to uh, take marker buoys that, uh, with them when they go. And when they see a net, they will attach a marker buoy. And these, these are satellite trackers. So about we had about 10 or 12 buoys that we picked up with nets attached. And then we also uh, keep a constant watch from the top of our mast, uh, a lookout spotting nets. And I'd say about half of the nets were marked and about half we just found ourselves. And so it gives a, it's, even when you go to a, to a track net, there's a good, good, good possibility that there's more nets around it, just by the nature of the currents and, and how things tend to collect. And so they were, they were great for finding nets and they were great for finding more nets around them. On days when, when we were looking, if we were not actively picking up a net, we often would just uh, pick up plastic debris from the ocean. And that would be, uh, well, again, it was a lot of it was fishing gear, uh, f fishing floats, baskets, uh, just all kinds of different fishing gear that was floating individually. And we'd send our small boat out, collect it up, and bring it up. And by the end of the day, you have a whole hatch full of, of, of plastic. And then we also would observe the, the small pieces of plastic in the ocean that we're not set up to pick up. We don't have any towing gear or nets to pick that up, but uh, that would will be the next step. What do you think has been the most startling thing that you've seen out there? Oh, for me it was the volume. You'll come into an area where you look over the side and in, oh, just in say 10 square feet of water, you're gonna have a hundred pieces of plastic. Now these are collected in, in the gyre by the, the uh, current system of the ocean, which tends to bring them into the center of the, of the gyre, so that's why that it's so, uh, there's so much observable in one place. But it's pretty amazing how much plastic is there. Is this the first time that you folks were actually hired as a charter to go out and retrieve this, or have you done this before? No, this was the first time. Uh, I've worked with Ocean Voyages Institute, well, Ocean Voyages and Ocean Voyages Institute for over 30 years, so we've done other projects, but this was the first time for us to pick up plastic. We'll be starting another charter for picking up ghost nets and plastic starting in May, which is the, the good season to go, the calmer weather. Uh, with calm weather, you just can see so much more. Wind and waves make it m much more difficult to spot. So the, the, the summertime is the season for, for ghost net fishing. Are there other vessels like yours that go out and do this? No, I don't know of any specifically using this technique. And it was claimed and that uh, this was the most plastic taken out of the Pacific Ocean by any vessel. So, uh, there, but there are numerous other projects underway, including the more difficult ones of uh, 
you know, taking the small bits of plastic. That's going to take a lot more technology than we have here available to us. And the ability that your vessel has to then retrieve this, you've got a special like crane or something that you could leverage? Well, the reason the vessel is suitable, there's several reasons. First of all, we're a sailboat, so we can cover long distances uh, with low or no fuel consumption at speeds that are appropriate for, for finding nets. And then secondly, our, our normal business is uh, cargo to small islands. And these islands often don't have a dock and often they don't have an anchorage. So we're, we're, we're working the cargo into boats in what can be rough seas. So that means our cargo gear is suited for that and it's, it can lift eight tons. So we can carry it, we can lift a, a heavy net and it's suitable for working in the ocean uh, where you have you know constant swell and and movement and really I have to say the third one is is, is our crew we, we have uh, just dedicated crew guys who will jump in the water and swim the, 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 the slings around the net and come back up and get, get it hooked up and jump aboard and get it up and once it's on board you've got to cut it up with using a variety of different tools including uh, hedge, manual hedge trimmers to t small knives because it's, you can't just, it has to be, a lot of it gets bagged because that, we have to put it down below and control it. So anyway, I, I, we just have a wonderful crew that sails our ship and they, once again, proved they were capable of getting the job done. That was Brad Ives, owner of the vessel Kwai. Ocean Voyages Institute has hired the cargo ship to make a return visit to the Pacific Gyre in May. Support for Hawaii Public Radio comes from the Honolulu Museum of Art with a mission to create relevant and transformative experiences through art with collections of Asian, European, and American works, including arts of Hawaii and textiles. HonoluluMuseum.org. Aloha, I'm Matthew McGuigan, hotel manager at the Alamana Hotel by Mantra, and we are proud underwriters of Hawaii Public Radio. Underwriting HPR has given us the opportunity to reach a unique demographic that is both on island as well as on our neighbor island that is not available through other marketing opportunities. Hawaii Public Radio Underwriting. Your message heard here. Learn more at hawaiipublicradio.org. The Wailua Sugar Plantation was the last sugar mill to close on the island of Oahu. Levi and Warren Chamberlain started the first sugar plantation in Wailua in 1865. Robert Halstead of Halstead and Gordon would acquire it in 1874, and later on, Castle and Cook would buy the plantation in 1898. Castle and Cook also expanded the acreage, built a railway system and maximized ground and surface water storage and irrigation systems. As a result of all these efforts, sugar production increased 
from less than 5,000 to 20 tons uh, in the early 1900s. Mechanical loading of harvested cane began to replace manual labor using self-propelled machines in 1920. Later, the Wailua plantation would co-generate electricity and sell it to local communities, contributing a small percentage to Hawaii's energy production. By 1991, the mill was producing 8% of sugar in Hawaii. However, due to profit concerns, the Wailua Sugar Company closed its doors in October of 1996. And I recall that day, a sad one for that community. And congratulations to David Lowe of Wailuku. You got it right. That's today's quiz. If you have one, send it to talkback at hawaiipublicradio.org. We were just talking about those ghost nets. Well, some of those nets ended up in the hands of an artist. University of Hawaii graduate student uh, Kat Kozlowskis has worked with marine debris collected by sustainable coastlines for a couple of years. And when the opportunity to get access to plastics from the Pacific Gyre dropped into her lap, well, she didn't know what she was in for. Within Without is a title of her exhibit that opens this Sunday at UH Manoa. As she shares with us, there is beauty in trash. They asked if I wanted a portion of this trash that came from the Pacific Gyre. I had no idea if it was going to be all ghost net or what, um, so I went and checked it out, and I couldn't really see what was in the bag. I knew that there was a lot of net, um, and I said, okay. And later that day, it came in a van, and uh, my boyfriend and I were waiting, and the guy dropping it off helped us get it out of the van onto a rolling cart. As soon as the weight hit the cart, it rolled back and pinned me against a wall. And <laughs> that's when I knew that I was, uh, I was in for a really big ride with this stuff. Um, and it has been extremely challenging to work with, but it really speaks to um, what I'm trying to talk about in um, sort of the, all of the complicated and convoluted issues that we um, face within climate change, climate chaos, um, all the p pollution that we are dealing with. Um, I think everything is so entangled and intertwined and really difficult to figure out what's happening, where, um, where to start even. I mean, untangling this mass, because it was one big giant mass, was like tackling and dissecting a monster. And it was really difficult to figure out where to start, where one thing started, where one thing ended, um, what was tied together. <laughs> so this is really kind of a metaphor. Absolutely. Yes, it's, it's kind of the perfect metaphor for what I um, had been wanting to speak about with my thesis show. Um, and it was kind of serendis serendipitous that it came um, towards me. Um, I wanted to give up quite a few times and <laughs> go back to easier materials, but um, I'm really excited and happy that I, I stuck with it and I'm looking forward to seeing exactly um, how it manifests in the space because, you know, with installation, it's, you can plan and you can mock up maquettes, but until you get in the actual space and start working with the lighting, you, you have no idea um, what you might encounter. So 
it kind of creates itself, I guess. <laughs> it, it, it does. I mean, I mean, I think that's, that's the beauty of um, being an artist, and I know a lot of other artists will speak to this as well. You know, you can have a plan, but once you start working with materials and ideas, um, you really have to be open to listening, and um, it will tell you. Those materials and ideas will show you things that you didn't expect. Well, what I love about what I see is that, you know, the colors are so vibrant and you've got really interesting textures that are that just kind of go in and out of the sculpture. Yeah, that I mean, that is the beauty of this material. I don't have to do anything to it but clean it and wrestle with it. I found the same thing with the oyster spacers and it's kind of sick to think about the fact that like I become enamored with certain portions and pieces of the material. I have a collection of like the rare oyster spacers that I wouldn't use because they're just special. I have little pieces of plastic I found that are really unique and they're kind of precious to me, which is really strange. <laughs> but if you talk to anybody who um, does beach cleanups, works with, um, you know, our waste inundation issues, um, they'll say the same thing. They, you know, um, you start to get attached to certain things. Was there anything that surprised you about working um, with this netting? <sighs> um, I think in the end I surprised myself in in what I was able to to do with it. I, I really I like to push myself in over my head, but I, I thought this time I had maybe pushed myself just a little too far. <laughs> I mean were you having so, nightmares saying I hate I hate this stuff? I, I, I was I was having um, nightmares of being chased by and entangled within nets. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. Um, but you know, and as you as you start to um, untangle them, you can't help but create sort of narratives about how these got into the ocean, how they connected together. Um, they become sort of these floating habitats, um, which I think speaks to um, sort of the resiliency of life, but at the same time, they are these, I've, I've dubbed it sort of this Frankenstein monster, like it, it's death reanimated, it continues to keep on doing its job even though um, it's been cast away. So they continue to catch um, larger animals and mammals, um, and those animals die slow suffocating deaths often or starve to death and that's really terrifying. Well when you had this tangled ball of, of netting I mean did you find marine life that was still alive in there or you know how did you how did you well how do you clean these nets? <laughs> it is unfortunately a mild bleach solution that they soak in for 24 hours it's very mild and then they sit out in the sun everything I didn't find any anything alive. There was definitely the smell of oceanic organic matter and as you can see on some parts of it you can see um, parts of shells and barnacles and um, 
other evidence of life. But there was nothing, there was nothing within it. I know when we see this uh, brought in with these ships, when they do have these cleanups in the Pacific, the sheer weight of it is just like amazing, you know, because, you know, and they have to haul them out of the ocean, right? Just this mass of tangled junk. Yeah, by the time I got it, it was pretty dry, but the mass, I mean, we never weighed it. I approximate it's about 700 pounds. There were a few portions that I did have to throw out. They were not usable or just too clumped together and smelly and gross. <laughs> okay. Um, and in this studio space, you've got buckets full of different uh, types of, of fiber, of ropes, of the netting that you've sorted. You know, you've got them in boxes, you've got them in, in pails and bags, and all this will come together. You'll weave them into this main structure that you've created. Yes, so we're going to actually start from the ceiling. The ceilings in the space are 14 feet tall, and the mass will then start to weave down and around these base form armatures that I've created. So what you see is only the innermost portion of what will be in the gallery. It's called Within Without, and it is actually quite personal. It's about my own sort of emotional and psychological roller coasters around thinking about dealing with making work about um, our existence in climate change and the uncertainty of our futures. So for me, it's often a bouncing back and forth between sort of ecological mourning and hope and wanting to speculate on different futures and hoping that we can, as communities, come together. I don't have children, but I think about children all the time and their futures. That was artist Kat Kozlowska talking about the art piece she created out of ghost nets that were hauled in by the vessel Kwai last summer. Within Without includes optical elements playing with light and shadow and is part of a graduate student exhibit at UH Manoa that runs March 8th to April 9th. Check out our website to find out more. That wraps it up for us. Up tomorrow, we look at results from Oahu's crackdown on illegal vacation rentals. The city asked for help from neighbors to report scoff laws. So how's it going? Well, tell us what's on your mind. Call our talk back line. Uh, the number to call is 808-792-8217. Email us or uh, check us out on Twitter and Facebook. <laughs> I'm Catherine Cruz. Join us tomorrow for more of the conversation. Mm-hmm.